And before I pray, it served well to turn to Lamentations 3. Let's start out by praying to the Lord. Father, your faithfulness is great, and your compassions are never finished. You never come to a place where you have completed showing us love, nor will you ever. And therefore, as we approach this book of weeping and sorrow and grief and disaster and trial and tribulation, I pray that you would give us hope, hope born of your steadfast love that never fails. Give us light to understand these things. Give us health where we are ill. Give us hope where we are despairing. Give us all that we need, for you have promised this much to us. In your name we pray, amen. I believe in the wind even when I can't feel it. I believe in the air even though I can't see it. I believe in God even when he is silent. These words were discovered in 1944 in the basement of a French house by Allied forces as they liberated France. They were written there by Jewish hands who had fled from Nazi persecution. And when we stand and consider in retrospect the horrors of that time, it is easy to understand why they would have said that God was silent. I have personally stood in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. I have seen the roomfuls of shoes and luggage and hair. I have stood in the guard towers and walked down the train tracks where boxcars of humans were shipped like cattle and sorted and ultimately brought to their deaths at that single location. The capacity for evil in the human heart is truly unimaginable, but so also corresponding to that is the capacity for human suffering. And this poses a question to us. What shall we do when God is silent? What shall we do when evils come upon us? Where shall we turn where, when we are trapped or backed into a corner? What shall we do when fear and terror beset us and will not leave us? What shall we do in grief and loss and miscarriage and poverty and childlessness and unwanted singleness and chronic illness and life-altering accidents and disease and so many other sufferings. What shall we say in our suffering? Where do we go to find hope when all is hopeless? And if anyone has something to teach us about that, it's Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah according to tradition, wrote the book of Lamentations while weeping over the fall of Jerusalem. Israel, with 
with God so many years before in the book of Deuteronomy had made a covenant, or God had made a covenant with Israel, and per that covenant, he had promised that if you obey, I will bless you. I will give you life, I will give you the land, I will give you prosperity, and with that would come influence and blessing to the entire world. But if you disobey Israel, I will curse you, and I will destroy you, and ultimately I will exile you and scatter you to all the nations. And of course, Israel through the centuries did not obey God. And so God faithfully fulfilled his promises to them in the form of the Babylonians in the year 586 B.C., Babylon came and besieged the city of Jerusalem, and according to tradition, Jeremiah ascended the Mount of Olives, which sits to the east of the city of Jerusalem. If you go there today, you can look over the city and see the entire city, and it was the same back then. Jeremiah ascends the Mount of Olives and looks over the Kidron Valley into the eastern slope of Jerusalem where he sees the Temple Mount and the city of David and so many other things where the history of Israel had played out. And he watches the display of God's wrath play out before his very eyes in horrifying, bone-chilling, gut-wrenching color. And it's important that we feel the weight of what Jeremiah experienced because it is into this context that he speaks, great is thy faithfulness. Your steadfast love never ceases. Your compassions never fail. He looks across the Kidron Valley and he sees the temple ablaze. He sees the city burning. The walls are broken down. Men are captured and speared alive through the middle on massive spikes and hung in public places as a deterrent to resistance. Women are chased and ravished. Children are ripped from their mother's arms and sometimes even from their wombs, grabbed by the heel and swung against rocks and walls. Gold and precious holy vessels are taken from the temple and carried out on pallets into the treasury of a foreign king, and the few who survived are put in shackles and marched off to a foreign land. He can't take what he sees, and so he shuts his eyes, but he smells the fire and the smoke. He smells the blood and the sweat of battle and the sewage of months and months of siege. He hears the cruel laughing of soldiers and the hoarse barking of orders by Babylonian captains. He hears the clanging of iron and bronze and shouts, the shouts of hunted men. He hears the screaming of women and the, ch- the crying of children and the crash of rubble and the grinding of the machines of war. No wonder, he says in chapter 2, verse 11, my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. In fact, the very title of the book is taken from the first word of Lamentations, which in English is the word how, but in Hebrew, it's 
Ah! A heaving sigh of grief and despair and heaviness and confusion and sorrow. And it would be nearly impossible to overstate the kind of blow that an event would have had like this on a man like Jeremiah, on an ancient Israelite. This is not any city. This is Jerusalem. This is where the kings dwelt. This is where they ruled over Israel. This was Zion, the chosen city of God, the city on a hill that was supposed to be a lighthouse of hope to the entire world. And most importantly, this is where God's presence dwelt in the temple. As was common opinion during Jeremiah's day, if God is with us, who can be against us? God's presence dwells here. How can a foreign army invade us? And yet, God will not be treated as a token. And we need to understand that the agony of losing Jerusalem extended much farther than mere national disaster. It had deep and pervasive theological implications. Implications for salvation. Implications for God's plan. To lose Jerusalem was to lose everything. There was no king, no seed of David on the throne, and therefore no chosen nation, no royal priesthood. There was no temple, no sacrificial system, and therefore no way to make atonement for sin, no way to commune with God. And therefore, there was no hope for the world, because from Zion, blessing was to proceed to all the nations. In short, Jeremiah was beholding nothing less than the apparent undoing of all God's promises. He had no hope. And in this context are the words which we love so much nestled. Great is your faithfulness. In light of all of this, what enables him to make such an audacious claim in the face of such gloomy state of affairs? How does he maintain his bold faith in the face of despair? How does he find hope in hopelessness? How does he uphold his faith when all around his soul gives way, when the earth gives way, when the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, when the waters roar and foam, when the mountains tremble at its swelling? He says in verse 21, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Jeremiah finds hope in his hopelessness by appealing to the truth of who God is. Now, our sufferings often pale in comparison to Jeremiah's, and yet his remedy is the same as ours. The face of our circumstances may be different, but our hope is the same, and that is because our God is the same. And the heart of the argument of our text this morning is this, the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. God will never break a promise, no matter what. He will never break a promise because his faithfulness is great and his mercies never end. And so in the middle of his despair, Jeremiah advises us and counsels us to remember, remember God, remember his faithfulness. 
And he does that, as we'll look at it, in four facets. He advises us to remember four facts about God which help us maintain our hope. And those four facts are the Lord's steadfast love, the Lord's goodness, the Lord's discipline, and the Lord's compassion. We'll walk through them in turn here. First, we'll consider the Lord's steadfast love, verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. He points us to God's never-ending, ever-enduring, steadfast love. They are new every morning. God remains steadfastly committed to fulfilling his promises. Verse 22 says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. What is the Lord's steadfast love? If we were to define it in one brief sentence, it would be commitment expressed in promises sealed by a covenant. Commitment expressed in promises sealed by a covenant. And the perfect analog to this is marriage. Isn't that what marriage is? A man and a woman express their commitment to one another by making promises to one another and sealing those promises with a covenant in the presence of witnesses. And this is exactly what God had done with Israel. In many ways, and at many times in the Old Testament, he describes himself as marrying Israel. We think of Hosea often. But listen to this text from Ezekiel 16, verse 8. When I passed by you again, I saw you. Behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread my corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. And he goes on in that text to describe God's lavish love for his people But this is why, in our text, it describes his steadfast love in the plural. Best translated by the New American Standard Bible, loving kindnesses. That's not a typo in your Bible. That's what it says. His steadfast loves, trying to give expression to the overflowing and magnificent character of God's steadfast love. And this was the continual and central confession of Israel. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And Jeremiah, in this situation, it reminds himself that God's steadfast love never ceases. His love is great. As the hymn reminds us, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. What an incredible statement of God's faithfulness. And Jeremiah leans on this, and he says, your steadfast love never ceases. 
What an incredible statement when you consider what he beholds with his eyes. Because what he sees is the apparent end of God's steadfast love. The end of his covenant promises. The casting off of his chosen and precious people that he calls his bride. And yet he still returns to the character of God and says God remains committed to his promises as he has promised, so shall he do. In fact, he remains so committed to his people, Jeremiah is convinced that he goes on to say that his mercies, his compassions never end. They're never completed. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every morning, We wake up and we find that the Lord's mercies are fresh and new. The Lord does not give mercies as though they are stale bread and stagnant water. They are fresh mercies, mercies minted every morning. Mercies custom tailored for today, all as a way to continually show us, especially in times of suffering, that God still is making everything new. His mercies are new every morning. Continual reminders that God is still faithful to his promises. Because, and Jeremiah, Jeremiah knows this because the son still rose on Jerusalem the day after. Rain still fell on the land. There's still breath in his lungs. Brothers and sisters, we've been given everything that we need. He gives us everything we need every morning. And in times of great trial and distress, it's tempting for us to focus on what's been taken away rather than what we have been promised. It's so easy to fixate on what we want, rather than what he gives. It's so easy to forfeit the joy of hope and trade it for the joylessness of possessions. Thus, we would do well to take time every morning and follow the oft-repeated advice our culture gives us, count your blessings, count them, See if you can. And all of this is to say nothing more than what he says in verse 23, great is your faithfulness. As God has promised, so will he do. And yet let us not be tempted to recite these words only with pleasant and easy things in mind. God is faithful to all his promises, including the ones to judge. Jeremiah was seeing God's faithfulness in judgment against his people. But doesn't that mean that if he fulfills those promises, that he also must fulfill the other ones, those of salvation? If he is faithful to judge, how much more faithful will he be to save? That is, after all, his heart. He is not inclined to judgment. He is inclined to mercy, steadfast love, forgiveness, and salvation. Now, let's not be confused. Not all of our suffering is a direct consequence of some specific sin we have committed. Nonetheless, we can say that all suffering is a consequence of sin in some way, and therefore result 
of God's judgment. All suffering demonstrates God's faithfulness to be against sin. And yet, every time we see our suffering, we are also reminded of God's commitment to save. Therefore, I would be so bold as to say that our sufferings are the surest sign of his faithfulness. The surest sign that we will be delivered from suffering. The surest sign that we will receive all of his promises. And that gives us hope. And so our trials are transformed into encouragements. And that is why Jeremiah in verse 24 can call out, The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I have hope. Now that word portion... Very interesting word because it's tied to the land. Joshua divided up the land and he would give each tribe a a lot, a portion of land. And think about what that would mean in Jeremiah's confession here. He is watching before his very eyes, his lot, his portion being taken away from him. And yet he still says, great is thy faithfulness. Why? Because his hope is not in the land. His hope is in the Lord. His hope is in the God who gave him that land to begin with. So, he is not prompted to ask, are you really fulfilling your promises, God? He is instead drawn to say, the Lord is my portion. Not land, not earth, not possessions, it is the Lord. We are often brought to this place where that which is given to us is then taken away. And have you ever been brought to the end of your rope and realized that the only thing you had left was God? Have you ever been brought to the point where The only thing that was left was him. See, it's a sweet and bitter place to be. It's bitter because the earthly things are taken away from us that our hearts so easily attach to. But it's sweet because it's only in that place that we learn what it is to walk in the fellowship of his sufferings. We cannot learn that lesson apart from that experience. And if you're at that place now, I encourage you to look to God. Let him be your portion Not your job, not your health, not your family, not spouses, not possessions, not not anything. It is God who is your portion. As it says in that oft-loved verse, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is our portion. And this we must call to mind And therefore, we must have hope. Secondly, Jeremiah draws us to consider the Lord's goodness. 
in verses 25 to 27. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He draws us to God's goodness. Look at how it repeats good. The Lord is, verse 25, good. Verse 26, it is good. Verse 27, it is good. The Lord is good. Good things are always an expression of God's goodness, whether it's the smallest bite of ice cream or the most highest and noble pleasures of life. But regardless of what they are, all goodness proceeds from God. All of it comes from Him. God's goodness, we could say, is God's disposition to be kind, His disposition to be generous, His disposition to give good gifts to His children. But again, let us not forget the context into which these words are spoken. For even though his gifts are always good, they are not always pleasant. As Spurgeon said, yoke-bearing is not pleasant, but it is good. It's not pleasant, but it is good. There are lots of pleasant things which are not good for you, like sweets and pies for Thanksgiving. And yet, there are a lot of unpleasant things that are very good for you, like vegetables and exercise. So also is it with God's good gifts. Sometimes his good gifts are given to us in ugly wrapping paper. Now, there are unique graces and mercies that can only be received through suffering, Suffering weans us from the inordinate love of the pleasures of this world. Suffering vividly paints a picture for us of the horrific spiritual evil that sin is. Suffering seals assurance to our hearts when we suffer for the name of Christ. Suffering causes heaven to shine more brightly in our eyes. It causes us to look forward to the hope we have And it teaches us to lean upon God's strength alone. But the thing that Jeremiah points out most is that suffering forces us to trust in God. It forces us to wait for him to act for us when we cannot act for ourselves. When we suffer, we wait for him. We hope in him. We anticipate his promises. When we suffer, we seek him. When we suffer, we desire him more earnestly, more eagerly. When we suffer, we pray. When we suffer, we desire his salvation in the fullest sense, even though we don't see it now. And so we're forced to wait and to hope and to trust, and that is good for us. Do we believe that? How many of us view suffering that way? There was a dear friend of mine, a lady who was a, a, suffered so much in her life, but she once counseled me and she said, if we understood how good suffering is for us, we would be a lot slower to try to get out of it. 
a lot slower. And how true, and yet how counterintuitive. Who wants to remain in suffering? Who wants to sit and wait? Who wants to simply wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord? We want to take things into our own hands. But this is not our work, but God's in us. We do, we, we, we're not some people who nurture some kind of sick masochism. We're not some kind of people who relish suffering. Our God doesn't, we don't, and yet when suffering comes upon us, we do not turn away from it. We don't run from it. We don't hide from it, but we embrace it for the good that it does us. And that is why he says it is good for one to wait quietly on the Lord. This recalls the words of Moses spoken to the Israelites as they were trapped between a hostile Egyptian army on one side and a a sea on the other side, between a a rock or a, a rock and a wet place, I guess. He says, fear not, stand firm, See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, Israel, and you have only to be silent. Nothing has changed. Think of how Jeremiah would have heard those words in his circumstances. Babylonians surround the city of Israel. And he's trapped. He has nowhere to go. He is suffering. And yet he says it is good to wait. If God has brought this judgment upon us, then God can deliver us from it. And that is why Jeremiah says that it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. The most difficult sufferings that we witness are the sufferings which the youngest go through. A man dies at 80 from heart complications, and it's sad but expected. The same man dies at 20 from the same complications, and it's a tragedy. The youngest sufferers are the ones we feel the most. But young suffering is good. Why? Because it teaches us to lean upon God before the old, the, the bad habits of life encrust our lives over time. When we learn to trust God when we are young, we learn a habit that stays with us for life. When we suffer when we are young, we learn to wait for Him. And that is why He says it is good, notice, that He bear the yoke. Not simply that suffering should come upon him, but that he should bear the yoke. Not throw the yoke off, not chafe under its burden, but to bear it. It is only in the school of suffering that we learn the lessons of his love many times. And that is why in the third place, he draws our attention to the Lord's discipline in verses 28 through 30. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. He points to the Lord's discipline. 
And he answers the question of, when we bear this yoke, what do we do? How shall we bear it? What can we do? In Jeremiah's circumstance, what could he do? He could do nothing. Jeremiah had even promised by his own lips that this event would occur. It was prophesied as a word of the Lord, a prediction of the future. The Lord would not turn this wrath away. No matter what the people did, it was said and done. It was irrevocable. What could he do? The answer is nothing. He was backed into a corner. He was surrounded by a powerful invading army. And so the only option he had was to sit alone, to wait, to hope, and to bear the yoke. And we, when we bear this yoke, that is the advice that Jeremiah gives us. Take it. Sit alone in silence. Put your mouth in the dust. Give your cheek to the one who strikes. Be filled with insults. And we say, thanks, Jeremiah. I have hope now. But listen a little close, more closely before we guffaw. The sufferer of these verses finds himself beset by suffering. Notice, it is laid on him, verse 28. Verse 29, he is struck. Verse 30, let him be filled with insults. The implication of this is that this is nothing other than God's work. It is done to him, and God has brought these things about. And that was certainly true for Jeremiah, as we just discussed. And so, Jeremiah's counsel is simply this. Do not resist the Lord, but humbly and submissively lay yourself out at his feet. Do not resist him, but submit to his sovereign hand. So we often find ourselves in positions where there's no way out, no possibility of turning back, where trials be, beset us. And I would give you the same advice as Jeremiah, advice that was given to me by a, a beloved man that I once knew. Take it. Sit alone in silence. Sit there and be quiet. Don't complain. Don't grumble. Don't answer back to the Lord. Just quietly endure the suffering and say, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. When he told me that, I was indignant. Because he did not understand. And yet, once I understood what he was saying, it liberated me. It freed me. It freed me from my grumbling because it helped me to realize that God has a perfect plan that he is working out which includes far more than just my comfort, far more than just my ease, far more than simply my convenience. It's the same thing that Jesus said in the garden, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not I will, not what I will, but what you will. The yoke was laid heaviest upon Jesus, and he bore that yoke in silence. Isaiah 
chapter 53, verse 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 23, he didn't complain, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, Jesus understood and recognized that the plan of God extended far beyond just himself in a certain sense. He understood that the plan of God could not be accomplished without his suffering. And so he patiently and quietly and humbly submitted himself to the will of God. Patiently and quietly endured the suffering. Take it. Let it have its purifying effect in your life. Sit alone in silence. Put your hand like Job over your mouth and then put your face in the dust, a gesture of mourning and submission and give the cheek to the one who strikes and be filled with insults. In other words, take it. Solving the problem is not the point. Getting rid of the suffering is not the goal. There are bigger things at play in our sufferings than just us. God is always silently working behind the scenes, accomplishing things which extend far beyond our individual lives. And so when we find ourselves beset by trials, let us strive not to ask, how can I get out of this? But instead, what, Lord, do you have for me in this? And if we do not bear the yoke when it is laid upon us, then we will miss the good that is intended for us. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this fact. He says that it is for discipline that we must endure. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We need holiness to see the Lord, but without suffering, without discipline, there is no holiness. And so we must patiently and quietly endure the yoke of suffering. How can we do that? How can we suffer well? How can we suffer with joy? How can we suffer with that kind of mentality? Is that even possible? And that's why he counsels us for our final point about the Lord's compassion. Verse 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And oh, how packed with comfort those words are. Especially when you consider the context into which they were spoken. Because it would have seemed that the Lord had, in fact, cast off forever. It was as though the Lord was saying, I'm done with you. And yet he returns to the faithfulness of God and he says, no, the Lord will not cast off forever. Now, briefly, we must draw a few lessons from this text, and let us first learn that no trial that is sent by the hand of God lasts forever. He says that the Lord will not cast off 
forever. The Lord will not cast off forever. He has been faithful to his people. He has never abandoned them. Throughout all of history, all of biblical history, he has made a single promise over and over again. Genesis 26, 3 to to Isaac, I will be with you and will bless you. Genesis 31, 3, I will be with you. Genesis 48, 21, God will be with you. God was with Moses in Exodus 3, 12, I will be with you. He says to Joshua through Moses, be strong and courageous, I will be with you, Deuteronomy 31, 23. He said to Gideon in Judges 6, 16, I will be with you. So throughout the ages, king after king, prophet after prophet, generation after generation, the promise held even down to the very lips of Jesus, the Messiah, who said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. He does not cast off forever. Second, let us learn that the Lord will always have compassion on us. It says in verse 32, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He recalls earlier where he says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and he reminds himself that this is still true. If his compassions never cease, then he will yet have compassion. And we do have this promise by the Lord's own mouth. Never have we been grieved without also receiving grace. Paul promises to us that when the trial comes, he will provide the grace to endure it, a way through, a path through. In fact, this promise is so sure that being grieved is the surest sign that we will, in fact, receive compassion. Paul again says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If there's no suffering, there's no glory. If there's no suffering, there's no compassion. He has compassion on us, not only in the midst of our suffering, but also shows us by his working in our lives to bring suffering along that he would in fact have compassion on us. And his compassion is also seen in ending the trial. He will have compassion. For the believer, there is no such thing as an eternal trial. All trials end, all of them. All trials end for the believer, even death in resurrection. Sometimes the Lord is compassionate enough to remove the trial from us in this life. But many times, he does not. But yet he still makes the promise that in the end, all will be made right. All will be made new. And lastly, verse 33, let us learn that the Lord never desires our pain and suffering, but sends it, as it were, against his own heart. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Even though the Lord does, in a sense, bring these things about through 
secondary causes, he nonetheless shows us and tells us that he never does so willingly. He never does so because he wants suffering. He never afflicts from his heart. He only afflicts against his own desires and compassions. And when it is necessary, he does so reticently and with great slowness and with slowness and with no delight. I often think about this when I have to discipline my children. I do not delight in disciplining my children. But I have to for their good. They don't understand that. Not once have I had an understanding child when I've disciplined him. (laughs) And yet, that does not change my obligation to them. I must do them good, and that means that I must discipline. God is the same. He must do us good, and therefore, he must discipline. And yet, when he does, he does so with no delight, no relish, no enjoyment. He is only after the good which comes from the pain. And we must never forget God's heart in this. It is very easy to impute motives to God. Why do you hate me, God? Have you ever said that? I've said that. Why do you hate me? That's short-sighted. Can we not believe that the Lord intends more in this than simply pain and suffering? Can we not believe that the Lord is always compassionate and kind and that he does this against his own will only because it is good for us and necessary for us that we endure these things? He is always compassionate and kind. He is always loving and gracious. And even when his love takes a harder form than we might want, He is still good. He never casts off forever. Though he causes grief, he will have compassion also. And so as we draw to a close, how shall we find hope in hopelessness? We shall recall what is true about God. We shall remember who he is. How shall we find hope in the midst of horrific suffering and evil? We find hope in suffering by remembering who God is and remembering his character. How do we know that in tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword that none of these things shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? We know that because God is God. Because God is who he is. And so resolve now in your hearts that no support will be enough for you in the day of tribulation except that. God himself will uphold you. He is full of never-ending steadfast love. He is good to all his creation in diverse and unexpected ways. He is caring and loving in the discipline of his children, and we must patiently endure it. He is compassionate through it all, for he knows our weakness, he knows our frame, he knows that we are but dust. 
And therefore, when we remember these things, we can have hope, even amidst the most horrifying sufferings. So take heart. Call these things to mind and have hope. Dwell on them. Let these truths seep down into the depths of your soul. Let them water the roots of your life. And what you will find is that even in your time of suffering, you will bear much fruit. He will sustain you, for he has promised that he will never let the righteous be moved. Let's pray. Father, we know that your compassions are great, that your steadfast love is always enduring. We know that you are good to those who wait on you, and therefore we desire to be those who wait on you. Help us, Lord, to do this when we seem like we have no strength, when we seem that we have come to the end of ourselves. At that point, let us look to you in trust and faith, for apart from that, there is no comfort or hope. Thank you that you have given us yourself in Christ, and let us look to him every day, every morning. In your name we pray, amen.